Well, welcome to the Cup for Time podcast here at the Canton United Methodist Church. I'm Pastor Clay. I'm joined by Eric Stearns, and today we're digging into my message from Sunday, which is about the Transfiguration, about Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem, um, and just everything that happens next. And so let's get into it. So you had talked in the sermon about how this story shows up in three of the Gospels, mm-hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, yep. and that they're different in all three. Yes, there are some definite differences. Why and what? Yeah, so the why is because of just how the Gospels were written. Like, Mark's Gospel was written first, and it is the action Gospel. Mark just wants to get the story out there, and so everything happens very fast in Mark's Gospel. But the phrase kai euthus in Greek is and then, or and immediately, and so everything happens really fast. Everything is kai euthus in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew is writing so that people understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies, that Jesus is for the Jews, the Messiah they have been waiting for. Luke is writing to give an orderly account of the gospel, of these things about Jesus. And so like in Luke chapter 1, he dedicates his gospel even. He says that he is writing this for uh, Theophilus, which is basically just a word that means a lover of God. And so it could have been that there was a literal person called Theophilus, um, or that is just any lover of God that happens upon these words. This is for you to understand what these things about Jesus that you've you heard about, what these really are. And so Luke is the gospel with the eyewitness statements. Luke is the gospel, um, like Luke 2 is a mom story. You know, Luke says that, he, that, that Mary treasured these things in her heart. Mm-hmm. How does he know that if he doesn't talk to Mary? Right. You know, and so that's Luke's gospel. And so Luke <coughs> is much more, you know, willing to give more details about certain things sure. um, than the other two gospels, just because he has that bent at an orderly account of the life of Jesus. That's the why. That's why they're different. Um, some of their differences, uh, Matthew and Mark both say that the transfiguration happened six days after the great confession of Peter. Uh, Peter saying that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, Matthew and Mark both say six. Luke says eight. Hmm. Um, and so I did some research on that in the, in the last couple of days. Um, and what I basically have found is that Luke is not being as precise as he usually is. And he says, so about eight days, which, you know, could be six, could be ten. Um, and he also, it depends on how you count the events that happened. Does the day that it happened actually count towards that day, that day count? Or is it, you know, we heard this on a Tuesday, and then, you know, the next day is Wednesday. Do I count that Tuesday or not? Mm-hmm. And so if Matthew and Mark don't, they have six. If Luke does, he has eight. The big key difference that I highlighted in the sermon on Sunday is the fact that Luke tells us some of the story or some of the conversation that's happening between um, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Because we hear that he is spe- that they are speaking about Jesus' departure, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So like the other two Gospels do not have that part of the story. Um, and so that is one of the big, big key differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Do you wonder why? I mean, that seems such like such a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Why don't the other two have those in there? Yeah, and I, I researched that, and I just don't have a good definitive answer sure. um, as to why that is. It could just be, again, because Luke had eyewitness accounts 
So um, why doesn't John talk about the transfiguration? Like, I feel like that's a big moment in... Yeah, because John, Jesus in John's gospel is such a different character, is much more spiritual. So, like, the transfiguration would not have had the same, like, pop, basically. It would not have been so much of a shock. No, it's not shock isn't the word. Is it almost unnecessary? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, because Jesus is so spiritual in John's gospel that, like, of course, of course this happened, you know? Mm -hmm. So it would not have been remarkable for John in the same way that it was. I mean, because both Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to just give a detailed orderly account of, of the events of Jesus. John is writing so much differently because John's whole thing at the end of the, of the gospel, it says, I have written this so that you can believe. There are just certain stories that do not fit that for John. And mm -hmm. so this is one of them that would not have been in the gospel of John. So then my next question on this story, mm -hmm. let's talk about Moses and Elijah. Why, why were they there with Jesus? Why did God have them appear? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of different uh, reasons why that I can, you know, that, that I kind of hold on to. The first is just what they represent in the life of the Israelites, in, in the life of, of the Jewish people. Like, Moses is the great lawgiver. Um, he's the one that talked to God on the mountain. He's the one that brought the tablets down. He's the one that, you know, proclaimed the law of God over the people of Israel. And so to have him there to represent the law. And then Elijah is one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. Um, you know, and so part of it is that, you know, he's there to fulfill the law of the prophets. And so the representatives of the law of the prophets are there on the mountain of transfiguration. Sure. So the other part of it is that both Moses and Elijah in their ministry, in the course of their ministry, had transfiguration moments with God. When Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing. And he doesn't know it, but the people of God know it. And they say, whoa, <laughs> what's going on with Moses? He's kind of shiny. That's weird. And then Elijah, when he is facing his lowest moments, he, you know, he wants to die. The, 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 the prophets of Baal just happened. Uh, he just wants to die. He wants to curl up in a ball and just die. And God won't let him. God ministers to him through the angels, giving him naps and giving him food. And then, you know, when God meets him, Elijah just says, you know, I'm the last of the prophets. They're coming for my life too. And just, I'm, I'm played out. And the glory of God comes past him. That's the whole earthquake and the, you know, that's the wind. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so both of them have this transfiguration story in their back pocket in their own life and ministry. So why wouldn't they show up at the, at the next one? And then the third thing that I think is that Moses and Elijah are two people in the history of Israel that did not die. Um, you know, Moses is taken up by God um, and hidden. We don't know where he, you know, ended up. Elijah's taken up to the, to the heavens in the chariots of fire. Like, Moses and Elijah do not die, and so they're going to go with Jesus. They're going to come and hang out with Jesus as he's facing, you know, this major crossroads moment in his ministry that is going to lead to him actually dying. Wow. That piece about them not dying, it's one of those things you don't remember. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next question. Yeah. Peter makes sense. Yep. Why James and John? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, John, I have a good answer for. James, I don't really. Um, okay. You know, John is called the beloved disciple. And so, like, Jesus shares this relationship with Peter 
and with John. And I think James, and it's not James, the brother of Jesus. It is James, the brother of John. They are the sons of Zebedee. And Mm -hmm. so I don't have a better answer than just my little brother tagged along with me. Really? You know, so. Okay. Yeah. I have so many questions on this one. Yeah. It's a a crazy story. It is a crazy story. Why do they keep it quiet? Mm. And I think we've talked about this before, but Jesus asked the disciples to keep things quiet all the time. Yes. Why this story? Mm -hmm. Because I would want to tell everyone. Right, yeah, I would too. Um, You know, and I think it all goes down to the Messianic secret. I think it all goes down to, well, in Mark's gospel, like the, the only unhindered confession of Jesus' messiahship is the centurion at the cross. Every other time that there's been a peak that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus has shut that down real fast. Um, You know, and so in Luke's gospel, um, you know, I don't really have a good answer Mm -hmm. other than than to say the messianic secret, like just this motif that that runs throughout the entire, the entirety of the gospels, that Jesus did not want this part of the world, of the word to be known. Um, And so they didn't mention it. They didn't say anything. That's fascinating. So Jesus didn't silence them. Um, they just they just told no one. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, and like maybe it's just because this is such a hard story to believe. Sure. Um, I mean, if you're the three, you have to go back down to the other nine and say, hey, you won't believe what happened on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And like everything, you, you, I can't prove it to you. And, not, you know, you can't see the effects of the transfiguration after it all happened. Like Jesus... You know, the voice boom down, the voice booms down from heaven that this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And then everything is back to normal. And yeah. so maybe there just wasn't anything to tell. Mm-hmm. But when you're after the fact and, you know, Jesus is gone, you know, they could be like, hey, do you want to know what actually happened that day on the mountain? Because mm-hmm. we can tell you. We can tell you now. Right. So. Because they obviously told someone later. Yes. Yes, they did. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Because there's actually even a reference to the transfiguration in Second Peter um, as well. So. Really? In, yep, in, the, in Peter's second letter to the general church. But Luke likely would have talked to Peter? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Luke would have been a contemporary with all of these guys. And like in the book of Acts, which is Luke part two, like some of the time... Luke is traveling with the disciples, um, sure. As they're you know doing their doing the work of ministry, like Luke, I mean, Luke becomes one of Paul's best friends. Like we talked about in the Paul series, part of the reason why the Book of Acts ends so badly or ends so suddenly is that Luke didn't want to write about Paul's death. And so in this gospel, like we talked about a little bit, um, Elijah, Jesus, <clears throat> and Moses are talking about what's about to happen, mm-hmm. which is a huge piece of information. Yeah, definitely. That we talked about, got yes. left out of the other two. Yep. What does that mean? Like, what were they talking about? What, right. Like, what is all of that? Yeah, the eight days after reference is eight days after the confession of Peter. And eight days after, for the very first time, Jesus has told the disciples what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And so they're talking about the, the exact same thing. Like Moses and Elijah, this doesn't come as a surprise to them because you know heaven. Um, but they, they 
want to talk to Jesus about this. And they're discussing what's going to happen in Jerusalem. They're discussing how this is all going to go down um, and that it is going to go down. Like Jesus had no, I mean, until the garden, Jesus has no doubt about what's going to, what's going to happen next. Um, you know, and so it's one of the commentaries that I read uh, this week um, for this sermon um, said that basically Jesus would not take this drastic of a step without the permission of heaven. And this is heaven giving him that permission to set his face on Jerusalem. And, and then go to the cross. It's almost like verifying that it was time. Mm-hmm. Right. It's really interesting. Like I, like I said on Sunday, like I have read the story before. Like I have done, you know, the source criticism to 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 know what Luke's gospel was talking about, but it caught me so off guard. Like I, you know, immediately called my friend Steph, who I've been doing the sermon series with, and I said, Steph, what is this? And like it completely changes the trajectory of my sermon on Sunday and. It did, and I'm glad that it did, but, you know, yeah, Moses and Elijah and, and Jesus are basically, you know, this is the law and the prophets signing off on Jesus. This is, you know, this is a major, major step that leads to much bigger things. So it's described as turning, Jesus turning his face towards Jerusalem. Yeah. So really his focus now, I mean, what, is, what does that really mean? His yeah. focus now is there or like... Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'll go back to my college days in Jesus and the Gospels with Dr. John Learman. Um, this was not a geographical statement. Okay. You know, Jesus does not turn his face to Jerusalem and then go right to Jerusalem. Like it's not, it's not like a monopoly board, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Like Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and then goes all over Israel. You know, like... There, if you look at the movements of Jesus, it is to the north and to the south and to the north and to the south. And, like, there is no, like, there's no direct path from this moment to Jerusalem. It is, it is a, a long process that gets us there. But everything that Jesus is about has changed. Like, Jesus is on the verge of sending out 70, you know, 70 people to witness to the faith, and that's something entirely different than how, what he has been doing. Like, Jesus is preparing other people to do the work. This is, it is after this moment that we get Jesus saying, hey, the, the, the work is plentiful and the laborers are few, for so pray to the Lord of the harvest for hands to bring in the, bring, bring in the harvest. You know, Jesus knows that his hands aren't going to be doing much very soon, and so he has to be out there preparing other people to carry this thing on if God's going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through the life and death and ministry of Jesus. Um, so he sets his face on Jerusalem because he knows what's next. Uh, he's also taking on the work of preparing his 12, of his disciples. You know, and so it is after he sets his face to Jerusalem that he teaches them how to pray. You know, the, you know, it, it, it's very different in between Matthew and Luke's gospel how this happens. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's gospel. And the whole Lord's Prayer part is very much, is very different because it is the disciples that ask Jesus to teach us, teach them how to pray. When when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, prayer is just a foregone conclusion. When you pray, go and do this. In Luke's Gospel, the disciples say, we need to know how to do this. We notice that you break off from us and you go and pray. Can you teach us how to pray? Hmm. And that's when he gives them the Lord's Prayer. So it's after this that that they're taught how to pray, which I think is significant based on what I believe about prayer being for and 
you know, and why we've been given that gift in the first place, which is to, you know, keep our bond to Jesus strong, you know, and so he's teaching the disciples how to grow in their faith when he's not there, um, you know, and then it's, you know, a lot of teaching on the nature of the kingdom of God. A lot of the famous parables are in Luke 13, uh, Luke 14, Luke 15, the kind of that, you know, later, later section of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus has this laser focus on teaching what the kingdom of God is like and how to be a part of it, um, you know, and so, and then it's the triumphal entry, and then it's the cross, and, but yeah, Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem from this moment, and everything shifts. Hmm. Do you know how long it is? Like, how long does it take to go from We don't really point a know point that B? answer. Because, like, one of the chapters is in, in Luke's gospel is sub is you know the, the the subheadings and the titles have been added afterwards obviously but like some of luke's gospel is just jesus telling stories jesus telling parables one after the other and mm-hmm. then you know the, those that are smarter than i am that put those you know titles and headings in place say you know some assorted sayings of jesus mm-hmm. so sure yeah timing gets kind of weebly wobbly and when it comes <clears> to <throat> yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. but really so what you're saying is he goes from him being the primary teacher mm-hmm. to equipping everyone else yes. to be the teachers. Definitely. Yep. Do you want to recap how this kind of ties into the previous three, week, three sure. weeks from Corinth? Yeah, definitely. So my feeling is that this love lesson of love transforming is what enables all of those love lessons and the other, those other love lessons to happen. Um, you know, if, if Jesus has transformed us, our lives look different. And what Paul is, re- is reacting to in Corinth is all of the ways that the Corinthians' lives have stayed the same. The divisions that they're facing are just such a symptom of the world that they live in, and Paul is calling them to something so much higher because mm-hmm. Jesus has called us to something so much higher. Like, we have been, Jesus was transformed, and his love transformed our world and transformed our lives. And so, like, Paul then says, hey, this is not the love of Jesus that's being shared in the communion table. And this is not the love of Jesus when you set up these divisions. The love of Jesus loves even when we don't. The love of Jesus does not end. And even when life comes to an end, the love of Jesus just keeps on going and keeps on transforming. And that's how it's going to be until the very end of time. This love that Jesus is showing by giving this glimpse of, of, of his true identity to his disciples, and then this, the way that his love shifted the world from that point, is the love that should drive all of us in all of the love lessons of Scripture, not just of, of Corinth, but there's love lessons all over scripture for us to learn. So it's the end of that series. It is. Now we step yep. into Lent. Ash Wednesday is Wednesday of this week. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk briefly about what you're planning to preach on? Or, sure. Or no? So I'm, I mean, basically what I'm doing on Wednesday is launching the entire Lenten sermon series. Okay. Um, you know, the scripture I'm going to be using on, on Wednesday is Joel 2, where Joel is telling the people of God not to, just go through the motions of their rituals, um, you know, where he, Joel ends up saying to the people of God, rend your hearts and not your garments. And it's really easy to just do that and say that you're doing that for the right reasons and then not do them for the right reasons. And so 
So the sermon series that I'm going to be walking through throughout the whole season of Lent is on asking questions. This weird season of Lent gives us this ample opportunity to really examine our faith, really examine our beliefs, and really ask good, solid, hard questions about our lives of faith. And so the question that Ask Wednesday asks us to ask is, what does God really want? Joel says it's for us to rend our hearts and not our garments, to really go through our rituals of our faith with an open heart and with a heart really attuned to God's will, not just to go through the motions of things, which we're all such in danger of doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're talking about, on Wednesday, we're talking about what does God really want? And then so Sunday, we're going even more basic to the question of who is Jesus? Like, who is this person that, you know, turned the world upside down and taught us all these love lessons and was transformed on the mountain? Who is that guy? Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about the moment that kind of kicks off the transfiguration story. Uh, we're talking about Peter's great confession, this wonderful, bold moment where Peter gets everything right before he gets everything wrong again. But, mm-hmm. you know, Peter, Jesus asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And the disciples all look at their shoes until Peter just blurts out that you're the, you're, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And, you know, that's who Jesus is. And so Lent, this whole season of Lent is so much all about Jesus. So we start off the very start of Lent with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why does that matter? And how do we live in the light of who Jesus is? That sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks for joining us this week on the Cover Time podcast. Uh, Join us here on Wednesday for Ash Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. And then again on Sunday for the first Sunday of Lent. Thanks for listening to our Cut for Time conversation. Join us for worship in person or on Facebook Live Sundays at 10 o'clock Central Time. And now go in peace and serve the Lord.